I need to uh, start, you guys, by taking you back a few um, messages. I've received several emails and uh, phone conversations and stops in aisle six of Lowe's or somewhere else. I've heard scuttlebutt conversations come out of classrooms, and it seems to me that I have uh, confused us, uh, which is common. I understand that. But see, I never, I never know this until I go home. And then when I go home, and Lori says, what were you trying to say? And I say, well, it's pretty plain. And I say it in about three sentences. And then she says, with grace and candor, then why didn't you just say it? So consider uh, Lori something like a Rosetta Stone. <laughs> consider my sermons hieroglyphics. Uh, and she is the one who helps translate these ideas so we can uh, get them. Let me go back to this. this the great um, a confusion that some of us are having is that in the shift from slave to child, we are no longer servants of God. We just move on into being children of God and never look back. And some of us are really kind of stuck in this, and they're saying, no, I, I can find verses in the Bible that talk about being servants of God, Old and New Testament. They're clear. And so I think we're still obviously indebted to those verses or responsible for them anyway in some sense. But there's also language that speaks of something like being children of God. So what I'd like to do is in about five minutes answer those questions all at one time. And if you have any other questions after this, I would encourage you to write my wife. <laughs> and you can ask anything you want, baby. <laughs> I want you to think of the uh, Bible specifically in the Old Testament as portraying God, first of all, in several different images, but there are three dominant images in the Old Testament or ways to see God. One is to see him as a creator. Another one is to see him as a king or a sovereign. And a third way is to see him as a father or a spouse or as a good friend. We have language in the Old Testament for God as creator. The Psalms are full of this language. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were formed. He spoke and it was done. Psalms says, where can I go to flee from your presence? If I ascend to the highest heavens, you were there. Literally in Hebrew, one word. If I go to the highest heavens, thou. If I go down to the deepest depths, thou. If I go to the farthest reach, regions of the horizon, even there, thou. So this is God as a creator, and we believe this. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, enlightened, accessible, hid from our eyes. Remember the language. These are our songs. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. You hear this language in our songs. 
There is another way to think of God, as I said, as a king or a sovereign. And so we have language in the Old Testament such as that spoken by David. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything on heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. This is king language. And you are exalted as head over all. So we have songs that talk about God as a king. Lead on, O king eternal. Crown him with many crowns. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth a royal, that's a crown, <laughs> and crown him Lord of all. But we also have language in the Old Testament of God as a father, as a father has compassion on his children. So does the Lord have compassion on us who fear him. For he remembers the day we were formed. He knows that we're dust. What I've noticed is that while all three of these images of God are true all of the time, generations tend to emphasize one image over another, and it creates a different kind of a Christian. If God is predominantly a creator, then he solicits awe and wonder, and it creates a generation of seekers. If God is predominantly a king or a sovereign, <laughs> then he generates reverence and obedience, duty, and it creates a generation of servants. And if God is predominantly a father, then it solicits images of union, intimacy, harmony, imitation. And what I've noticed is that one generation will tend to camp in one of these models, and the next generation will fix it by going in either way. So I confess... I'm old school. I'm closer to you sitting in back than I am to you people sitting in front. Except for you, Joe. I'm closer to you. <laughs> so when I grew up, God was a sovereign. He was a king eternal. He was to be feared and respected. And it generated a generation of Christians who followed with loyalty and devotion and allegiance and obedience to the word of the king. Our predominant image and worship was this. The next generation came along and said, we are no one's slaves. We are children of the heavenly father. And so there are images of union and intimacy and imitation of the father and the predominant um, uh, 
posture in worship is this. Those are two different images. Now, what I would like to say or should have said, and my wife reminded me I did not say, uh, was that all three of these are necessary. If, if one generation does not remember the other two, something vital is lost in the Christian's development. My generation was so stuck on obedience that we forgot the king is a daddy. The current generation is uh, sometimes so devoted to an image of the father that they have forgotten your daddy is a king and he has a mind of his own and he is perfectly capable, no, probably likely to say things you don't agree with and don't even like. If you get stuck in father image without remembering the king, you can't imagine a God who would say anything too hard for you. Why would he call me to do that? I'm not passionate about that. Well, he has a mind of his own. What I was saying, and I still believe, is that while most of us, even the current generation who grew up in this image, we sing, talk, testify like we are children of the Father. But our default actions are those of a servant. We still pray like servants. We suffer like servants. Why would God do this to me? Why would he do this to me? Is God angry at me or something? <laughs> Hebrews says, when you suffer, these are the disciplines of a father. So whenever I say, why is God angry at me? <laughs> I'm tipping my hand. I can sing children of the heaven, but my heart is still feeling like a slave. Have I made that clear? Oh, geez, four people are now clearer than they were before. My goodness, I don't know what else to say, you guys. We are all three. Here it is. But when Jesus comes, he shifts the dominant focus from that of a servant to that of a son. This is what he said. He said, I no longer call you servants I call you friends because the servant does not know his father's business. I call you my friends because everything the father has said to me, I've said to you. That's child language there. You hear it? Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, Therefore, you are no longer servants. You are children. And God has taken the spirit, his spirit, and put it in you. And so you cry, not Lord, Lord, you cry, 
Abba, Father. Hmm. Romans 8, 15. God has not given us the spirit of servanthood, bondage. Same root word for servant. He has given us the spirit of his son, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Jesus revolutionizes the entire Bible. He takes a bunch of Israelites whose predominant message was serve the king, and he makes them children of the living God. Therefore, everything we read in the Old Testament should be read as children first, not as servants. See, you miss this if you get stuck in this mode. Now are we clear. We're just getting started. I want to talk today about one of these um, dominant shifts into childhood. It's the shift uh, uh, to a promise. In a secular age, the greatest threat is not that you would believe something that isn't true. It's that you might not believe something that is true. When God makes a promise, it's true. God doesn't have wishes. His promises are not his dreams. They are not his commands. They are not his wishful thinking or his prophecies. His promises are historical fact. They just haven't happened yet. But the problem with a skeptical age is that you can't believe in promises because the heavens over you have been sealed shut. God cannot penetrate into the earth, nor can you get out of it. And so you cannot hear the promises of God because they're too outrageous. Therefore, you settle for vision. And therein lies the rub. A vision starts from within. You look at your dreams, your aspirations, your resources, and you ask yourself, what would we like to do someday? A vision is a self-generated image of a desired future. But it starts with the individual himself or herself. And then it works its way out from this hunger in my soul into a plan. And then after the plan, I got to raise the resources. And after I raise the resources, I got to determine the outcomes. And then after we got the outcomes, I got to recruit the people and then execute. It's strategy. It's a beautiful thing. But when God makes a promise, 
It is ridiculously outrageous. You cannot dream of this on your own. It comes from the clear blue, and it happens when you're not even looking for it. He just walks by. You got the Egyptians to your back. You got the ocean in front of you. You got nowhere to go. And all of a sudden, you hear a word, and that word says, you must only stand firm, and the Lord your God will fight your battles for you. Exodus chapter 14, verse 15, Moses quit praying. Jeez. Okay, I added that part. <laughs> he says, stop praying for crying out loud and get my people moving forward march and on the promise of God Moses starts walking into the ocean and when his foot hits the water it just parts like peasants for a king that's a promise you can't stand at the base of an ocean and say well what would we like to do what can you guys envision happening here you can't envision that you'd be out of your mind to think that water is going to stand up like a wall but when God talks it's done you see it when it hadn't rained for three and a half years and the prophet goes out and argues with the prophets of Baal and when the battle is over with the prophet stands up and says, this is what the Lord has said. Look to the sky, people, because it's going to rain. He goes back into his tent. He sends a servant out and says, go and look at the sky. Tell me what you see. Servant goes out and says, I don't see anything. <laughs> prophet says, that can't be. God has talked. He made a promise. Go look again. He runs out, looks again, says, no, man, there is nothing out there. This happens seven times. And finally, one time, the servant comes back in the tent. He says, you're not going to believe this, but way in the distance, I see a small cloud the size of a, hand, of a man's fist. And the prophet smiles and says, you better go tell the king to batten down the hatches. It's going to rain. You cannot look at the horizon and all of your cohorts and say, what do y'all think we should do about this famine? You don't have an idea that big. If you did, we'd put you in the hospital. You say, what's your point? My point is in a corporate world, we have taught leaders to dream, but we have not taught them to listen. Visions are the result of a dream. Promises are the result of a voice. I cast a vision. I hear a promise. I aspire. I execute my vision. I believe and I wait for a promise. I can work, as my mother said, till the cows come home and I cannot make a cloud in the sky appear like a man's fist. That 
is something only God can do. My concern is that we will sometimes take what is a promise and pull it down so it's a vision. Oh, you probably want a text applied to this sermon. Okay, here's one, Genesis chapter 15. Let's say you're Abram. God came to you 10 years ago, and this is what he says. Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and I will make you into a great nation. I will make your name great, and I will bless you. Anyone blesses you, I'll bless them. Anyone curses you, I'll curse them. And all the world will be blessed because of you. That's a promise. You couldn't dream that up as a 75-year-old man. So you ask a 70, you ask Abraham, what's your vision for life? He says, this is stay on the right side of the sod, man. That's it. So he goes out and he hears that. And he thinks to himself, God's going to do something. And then 10 years goes by and nothing happens. And he starts to think to himself, well, maybe I didn't hear him right. Maybe there was something I'm supposed to do and I haven't done it yet. Maybe that was a vision or a word uh, that was said to everybody. And I just hijacked it and made it my own personal promise. Maybe that's what I'm doing. And so in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord comes back a second time and says, I'm your shield. I'm your protector. Abram's empowered by this, he uses the Lord's name for the first time, calls him Yahweh. He says, Sovereign Yahweh, what do you want to give me? I don't have any kids. Now, that doesn't mean something to some of you. Others, it means a lot. But in early ancient times, to be childless was an unmitigated disaster. Your children were your future. They're your legacy. You got no children, you won't be alive after your generation. And besides that, no one's going to take care of you in your old age. There are no nursing homes. What do you want to give me, Lord? Really? I don't have any children. Here's what the Lord says. A son will come from your own body. Really? Yeah, now go outside and look up to the sky and start counting. Abram goes out, he looks up, he gets to about 2,000, 2,500. <laughs> Scientists tell us on a clear day, we can see between 2,500 and 5,000 stars on a clear night. But they also tell us beyond those stars, wait for it, are thousands of millions of other stars that you cannot see, and that's just inside of the Milky Way galaxy. And the Milky Way galaxy is one of millions of galaxies. So go outside, Abram, and start counting. He gets to 2,000, and he gets 
stuck and the Lord says, this is how your offspring will be. I think what the Lord might have been saying was, not only, Abram, I will give you as many descendants as there are stars. I think he was also saying, remember, Abram, my promise is based on the thousands of millions of things you cannot see, not on the 2,000 that you can see. The 2,000 stars that you can see, Abram, that is your vision. But the thousands of millions of things that you can neither see nor control. Now that's a promise. Abram goes home excited. He says to Sarah, the Lord appeared again. We're going to have a child. And for a year, he's now 85. They're trying to have children. Oh, this is so great. An 85-year-old man trying to have kids. Okay, you're missing it. (laughs) Some of you are like, (laughs) if you're a guy and you've wondered, when does it stop? Sometime after 85. So a year goes by and nothing happens. And Abram starts thinking to himself, must be it, the Lord wants help. Sister Sarah, we got a problem. I think what the Lord gave me was a vision that he wants me to start a great nation. And so we can't have kids And since the obstacle, wait for it, is central to the vision, we can't go anywhere unless we have a child. Sarah says, I got an idea. I have a servant named Hagar. Why don't you marry her? You can sleep with her. This is exactly what Abram does. He marries a much younger servant girl, sleeps with her, and... It always works, don't it? Don't misunderstand Hagar and her son Ishmael. Hagar and Ishmael are not a sin. Some of you are caught in this idea saying, oh, it was what they had two wives. Dude, a little Old Testament history will teach you that this was a common practice for childless couples. This was not outside of custom. There was no law yet forbidding uh, polygamy. This was an accepted practice. Hagar and Ishmael are not a sin. Hagar and Ishmael are human effort. They are an attempt to take a promise that God has given us and break it down into practical next steps so there's something we can do. And if you times it by 10, then we will get our vision. You will, all 2,000 stars, but you won't get the thousands of millions of things that only God can do. That is God's business. So our problem, I think, 
is that we find human ways to do what God has said he will do. And we get in the way. We commandeer these things. Wait a minute. Stand up. All of us, please. We're not done. Just stand up. So I'm asking myself, how do I know I've done this? And I found some sins. I found them in Steve. Now, that I'm going to put them all in the first person tense. I may not do them all, but I have at one time or another. And if I start to describe you, I would just like you to comfortably, without groaning or throwing anything, find a seat. Here we go. Seven symptoms that I am hijacking a promise and making it my responsibility. The first one's called duty. I have a tendency to turn promises into commands. I read, I will, and I hear, thou shalt. I tie my spirituality to my performance, so I feel guilty when I don't pray enough, read read the Bible enough, witness enough, go to chapel enough. And yet when I do these things, it doesn't bring me any joy. Already? Those who are alive and remain, stress. I have a psychology. I just say the word in there. I have a psychology of achievement, an insatiable desire for affirmation. I look for ways to accumulate more and more achievements. Sometimes I can be found doing two to three things at one time because it gives me a great feeling of accomplishment. I'm always thinking of my audience, my coworkers, my professors, my followers on social media, my employees, the guild. I'm hypersensitive to what they're thinking about me, if that's true. Sit and pray. Three. I'm going to get you, buddy. (laughs) You ought to come up here and preach, Howard. (laughs) That's great. That is great. Give your hands. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I ain't even going to read the other five. I'm embarrassed. I was in a college one time, and I did something like this on narcissism. I had 11 symptoms, and I wasn't even looking at the audience. I was just reading all 11, and I got to the end of the 11, and I said, and if you are still standing, you must not be a saint. You must be the son of God. And I looked up, and the president was standing right down here. I just went, oh. Thank you very much. You're going to be seated. So I'm looking. I'm looking. All right. I'll spare you the other five. You know our tendency, do you not? It is to take what God said only he would do and turn it into a promise. Listen close to me. When God makes a promise, you hear it as fact. He lives in the future, and he is talking backwards. He is speaking of a moment ahead of you that is as sure as the moment you are in. And when God puts himself on the line... He's good.
good for it. You have to hear it. But wait for it. You cannot chase a promise. Some of you are going to think, well, I'm just going to go in the Bible and find a promise. You do not hunt a promise the way you hunt rabbits. (laughs) You hunt a promise the way you hunt deer. You go to the place where they hang out, where they live, and you just start reading. And pretty soon, one will just come walking right by. And when God makes a promise, you won't just see it, you'll hear it. It'll jump off the page. And here's another thing. He won't give you 10 promises. He'll give you one promise 10 times. And it will be bigger than anything you could ever do. It will be outrageous. And here's another thing. When God makes a promise, it won't be done in your lifetime. It will be done in your descendant's lifetime. Now wait, the promise is not just for you. It is for the descendants that come after you. So if you got a picture of the way you want your life to be before you die, that's noble, but that's a vision. And you can call God to come into your vision and help you, but God is not obligated to your visions. He might help you, but he is not obligated. But when God makes a promise, I don't know why a powerful person would ever do this. He is obligated to a mortal. Powerful people never promise anything. It's why politicians today make promises before you elect them. Almost never after. Okay, that was political, sorry. God is good for it. So I've decided the way to end today is to hear a promise. Somewhere in this room, there is a person or two at least who was one day alone with God and all of a sudden... There was something that you longed for and you couldn't even articulate. And you were just wading through the Bible as always. And there it was. <laughs> and then a few years later when you started to disbelieve again and you think, I think I got that right. Maybe that was just for everybody. There it was. You tried and you failed and you couldn't get it right and you beat yourself up. And right when you were going to quit, it came back. There it was. I want to hear from you. Somebody answer that.